about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. As Becky's already alluded to, one of the beautiful centers of this passage is that summons by Jesus of the little children and their ability to come to him and his declaration that anyone who wants to receive the kingdom of God needs to do it like a little child, otherwise they will not enter into it. It's a beautiful image. It's a stunning image of simplicity of faith, of nothings becoming everything, of the fact that you really need nothing to become one of Jesus' disciples, to gain everything he offers in his kingdom. And yet through the whole rest of the chapter, you see examples of why exactly we're not like little children when it comes to the kingdom of God. All through the rest of the chapter in different people in different places, we notice that really the way of the kingdom is not natural to us, and there are many obstacles in us to receiving it like a little child. Uh, In my notes for this sermon, I've always called it, or in my head, I've always called it sex, money, and power in the kingdom of God, if that helps you understand, because Jesus is so strong in this passage. Uh, He gets asked a very simple question and and gives very impossible answers. I think they're all to help us understand what it looks like to be a child and enter the kingdom in that way. So let's have a look through and notice the things that are obstacles to us as we move. The first thing that Jesus wants to say to us is that marriage has a bigger story. That's what we learn from him entering this debate in verses 1 to 11 right at the beginning. And before we head on in, it's worth noticing that this is not the sum total of what the Bible says about divorce and marriage and remarriage. There are many more things to say, And the second thing to say is that this is not an impersonal topic for many of us. We've all been affected by divorce in various ways and in different ways. Uh, And if you're coming to church this morning and this passage hurts for you, then I'm, I'm sorry that that's true. And I pray that this morning you might have grace and not shame in the midst of that too. Uh, Because that's the way we get to enter conversations with Jesus. So let's, with those two things in mind, let's explore what Jesus talks through here, uh, because he's basically thrown under the bus by the Pharisees. Uh, They come up to him with a question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus throws it back at them and says, well, what did Moses say? And they say, well, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send his wife away, quoting Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 to 4. Now, Jesus is being thrown under the bus because this is a first century debate about what you do with Deuteronomy 24. Effectively, there was a very conservative and a very liberal interpretation of this law. On the conservative end, one school thought that, well, the, the, the allowance of divorce was only in the case of unfaithfulness. And on the other hand, the liberal school felt like, well, Moses allows you to divorce for any and whatever reason. There are some places in the Jewish literature where this, this is taken to extremes, such as where it's written, a man can divorce his wife if he found another fairer than her. 
or in Josephus's, the great historian's offhand comment, at this time I divorced my wife, not liking her behaviour. So Jesus is being thrown under the bus. How will he interpret this law? Will he align himself with either one of these liberal and conservative parties? And Jesus is always smarter than the terms of the debate he's given. Always. And what he declares in, a, uh, in response to this, he doesn't side with either party. He declares and affirms the greater story that marriage fits into. First of all, he starts by saying, well, Moses gave you that law because your hearts were hard. Which is an interesting thing for him to say. Effectively, that law exists because divorces will happen. And the damage of divorce will be big and it needs to be curtailed and protected. Deuteronomy 24 is actually about how to protect a vulnerable woman when she's put in a precarious place of divorce. And giving her a legal certificate was a way of her to return to her family or to remarry, actually. And so Deuteronomy 24 is about protecting the fallout of the vulnerable from divorce, effectively. And encourages us that the Scripture understands the fact that divorce will happen in a fallen world. And we as God's people are encouraged to love and care for anyone affected by its fallout. But Jesus goes somewhere else with the debate. He looks further back to Genesis 2. He, he looks back to the bigger story of God's purpose for marriage. He says, from, but at the beginning of creation, or from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, and so they are no longer two but one flesh. You see, Jesus is not in favor of building an ethic of marriage out of an exception. Deuteronomy 24 is an exception towards circumstances that came about, that would come about in a fallen world, uh, but it doesn't give us an ethic of how to do marriage. We're always tempted to build our ethics from exceptions, from circumstances we've experienced. But Jesus looks at the biggest story of Scripture to inform them that from the beginning God had a purpose for marriage, the two coming together as one in his sight, one flesh, a faithful covenant for life. That's the way we are to navigate marriage in this world, to make sense of it, rather than the exception of Deuteronomy 24. Now, the disciples don't find this sufficient, and so they ask him again in private in verse 10 and 11 about this. And he, he goes on, and this is where he gets probably the strongest. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her, and vice versa if a wife divorces her husband. Now, it's worth keeping in mind at this point the context. That what Jesus has in view is the flippantness of people like Josephus, of the extreme liberal view of the law that someone can just take up and leave when they find someone else they prefer. We've had an example from this in Mark, actually, in Mark chapter 6. King Herod is like this. He leaves behind his wife for the fairer Heroditus, his brother's wife. That's what's in Jesus' view here. That flippant use of the covenant 
of marriage that is happening under the liberal interpretation of the law. And Jesus is strongly against that. We, we can say that from this text, but it doesn't give us the full picture of what divorce and remarriage is to be like. In, in the text in Matthew, exactly the same verses, it talks about the exception for unfaithfulness. Paul goes on to speak about abandonment in Corinthians. There's much more to be said than this. But what is Jesus saying? Well, he's affirming the bigger purpose of marriage, the coming together of two in one. What are we to take from this? Well, I think his method is helpful. When we're, we're trying to make sense of matters in Scripture around marriage, we're to look at the big picture. We're to look at the beginning. We're to look at Jesus, the bridegroom, and his marriage to his church in the end. The big picture of what ma- how marriage fits into the Bible rather than building an ethic out of exceptions. That's a good method for us to follow. I think also for those of us who are affected and and suffer the the fallout from divorce, I think we're actually given a good reason to mourn. I think this passage validates our experience and and our real sadness. Jesus' affirmation of marriage makes us realize that when it falls apart, this is not the way God intended it to be. And we can mourn and feel sad with those who mourn and are sad. And our sadness is vindicated, I think. For those of us who've experienced abuse and neglect and violence in marriage, I think this too assures us. Jesus' affirmation of the purpose of marriage makes clear that abandonment and abuse break and violate the thing that God has made. And his affirmation actually leaves us free to seek a safer place instead. For those of us who are struggling in marriage and are actually just finding it really difficult, it gives us a reason to look to our maker who made what we are in for hope and strength and for our brothers and sisters to work out how to continue in the one flesh covenant we have been given. And what what emerges from this is that one of the ways we end up not being like little children is the, 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 the difficulty and the hardness of our hearts as the Pharisees have toward God's purposes. The kingdom of God paints this beautiful big picture of marriage and it is one of the points at which we can struggle to be like a little child taking hold of the kingdom. But it's not the only one, is it? The second thing that Jesus heads to, if he hasn't said enough today is to the topic of money. And for Jesus, money can make things impossible. Money can make things impossible. In verse 17, a young man runs up to Jesus. He's not cynical like the Pharisees. He's eager. He bows down. He he comes with a question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Is there no better question to ask of Jesus than this? How can I get in on the kingdom? How can I receive all that you have? And Jesus responds again with the Jewish law. Well, you know the commandments. And he says, well, I've done them since I was a boy. What do I need to do to be in the kingdom? Jesus, in verse 21, looks at him and loves him. I love that phrase. That's who your Jesus is today, can I say, if you take nothing else from this text. Jesus is the one who looks at you and loves you. 
The word for look is not just a cursory glance, but a deep searching, a deep knowing. Jesus deeply knows you and loves you today, even in your lack, because that's what's about to happen here. Jesus looks at him and loves him and sees his lack, and he says, listen, there's one thing, there's one thing. Go and sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. And Jesus exclaims twice, twice, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven? Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of heaven? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Money can make things impossible, according to Jesus. Now, what does he mean here? What was this young man, eager as as he was, what was his problem Why does Jesus tell him to go and sell everything? Well, do you notice the key key point? Go sell everything, then come follow me. Jesus is saying to this young man that his money is between him and Jesus. That his money is an alternative master that he has to turn away from in order to take on Jesus as his Lord. You see, money can win our adherence and love and trust in the same way that Jesus zealously longs to have it. When we accumulate wealth, it can whisper to us of our security because of it, of our significance, of the prestige it hands to us, of our ability to purchase and have all things through wealth, through money. And both our obsessive accumulation of it and our miserly use of it accounting for every penny, can both betray that we listen to it rather than Jesus. Even this week, we've seen how the pursuit of, let's say, basic needs can become an obsession that makes no sense in various supermarkets around Australia. You know, the the toilet paper will not save you. The accumulation of buildings will not save you. The accumulation of money cannot save you. I just, even this young man, as he comes to Jesus, his question is asked in material terms. How can I inherit eternal life? Money has this way of twisting our hearts to, to see the question in the wrong way. Our possessions cannot save us. Only Jesus can The disciples turn around and say, well, we left everything. We left our businesses and fishing behind and our homes and our families. What about us? And Jesus says, if you've left anything behind to come follow me, you will never lose. If you have to give up your pursuit of status and wealth, you will not lose. If you have to give up your treasures, you will gain greater ones in this world and the one to come. Jesus summons for the the man to sell his goods is his declaration to him that he needs to turn away from wealth to follow Jesus. And Jesus is not telling us to sell everything we have to come follow him. That's not what he's saying today. But he is saying that perhaps you need to let go of something, that there might be some treasure in your way of following him. And the surest way to deal with money 
is to lose your grip on it. The antidote of generosity that Jesus prescribes is the right course for our stubborn hearts. Friends, is there something between you and the Lord Jesus? Some treasure, some money, some pursuit, something, someone. Jesus says it is worth losing because to hold any treasure before him makes things impossible. But the third thing we learn from this text that's very important is that Jesus' use of power makes the impossible possible. Jesus' use of power makes the impossible possible. In this last bit of the chapter, we get this remarkable vision of the, the way power is to be used in the kingdom of God. And it is unlike the way power is used anywhere else in the whole world. Jesus says that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And he summons his followers to not lord their authority over others, but to become humble servants. It's a startling vision of the way power, authority, and prestige and status can be used in the world and should be used in the kingdom of heaven. But that instruction is surrounded in the way Jesus uses his power and how he uses his power in a remarkable way. See, it starts with him predicting his death for the third time. And he does it in grisly, gruesome detail. He talks about walking to Jerusalem, being delivered over, being condemned, then being mocked and spat on and flogged and executed. He speaks of his path through humiliation that is about to happen in Jerusalem. It's a startling, gruesome picture of what he knows he's in for. And yet, James and John rock up and think this is a great time to ask a question. And they preface that question with, can you do whatever we're going to ask next? And they asked to sit on Jesus' right and left in glory. Their, their, their vision of walking to, to Jerusalem is of them gaining power and control and prestige and status through Jesus' glory. And Jesus just spoken of the humiliation that awaits him on the way to the cross, on the way to his kingship. The, the question should jar against us. This question is, does not belong in the kingdom. Jesus says, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Are you going to die with me, he says? They say they can. He says, you will. Talking about their martyrdom. And says he cannot promise honor, the right and the left, to anyone. Then he summons his disciples and says, listen, I am going ahead to serve. And you are to become people of service. People who use their power Not to bring those below them down, but to lift them up. Not to lord it over others, using your power to make your name greater and bigger and more famous, but to make others greater. It's about the way that power is to be used for the good of others rather than for the good of self. This is true of the people in your life whom you have some sort of power authority over. Whether that's in your workplace, people who report to you, who look to you for guidance, for their what to do next, for 
whatever they look to from you. It's, it's about those people in your gym, those people in your club, those people in, who are on the edges of the places where you're in the center. It's about the way you treat them with the prestige and the honor that you have. Jesus says in the kingdom, there is no room for use of power for self. And this is where we realize again that there's an obstacle to us being like little children. That we are not people like that. And yet it is Jesus who uses his power to make the impossible possible. Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus walks to Jerusalem to be flogged and mocked and spat on and killed to pay your ransom. Ransom was the cost to set a slave free in the ancient world. It was a cost it took for them to walk out the door free as a bird from their former master. And the ransom is the price that Jesus pays to free us from out from under our own addictions and sin and judgment and wrath. You see, the only way that hard-hearted people enter the kingdom is by the ransom price of Jesus. The only way that rich people can walk into the kingdom is by the ransom of Jesus. The only way that people with power and authority and prestige who are hungry and seek them above all else can enter the kingdom is by the ransom price of Jesus. Jesus offers his life in order to free us, that we might become again little children. This one time, Cass and I were buying shoes for myself at a shopping center, and they were white shoes. I haven't bought white shoes frequently, so it sticks in my mind. And I don't know how, what happened next, how it happened, but I was trying these shoes on, and they were difficult. There was jiggling involved, the laces, etc. And I don't know what happened, but I looked down to see how they looked, and they were covered in blood, just covered in blood. And I just cut myself on this sharp bit of the shoe and I'm looking down thinking, right, this is interesting. Cass looks up at me and doesn't drop a beat. She says, well, do you like them? <laughs> because now they're yours. <laughs> because now they are yours. Something about bleeding all over something that makes it yours in a way that a credit card just can't. There's something about the blood of Jesus, his death on our behalf, his bloody, gory execution that purchases us in a way our money never can, in the way our prestige never will, in the way our own self-determined pursuit of life can't. And the only way to become like a little child is to receive your life back from his ransom. And when you live your life, not as yours, but as his, that's when your heart is no longer hard to his purposes, no longer clinging to your money, nor pursuing your power for your own good, but instead walks in the way of his kingdom. Amen.
Thanks for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.